1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Devdut Longcomer, the host of this channel. Today, I'm here with Dr. Sepandi Chatterjee to talk about her book, Choral Voices Ethnographic Imagination of Sound and Sacrality. This book is about how choral voices are an extension of the voices of specific communities, and I believe that this conversation will be a very interesting one and this is what i am going to explore with the author herself here so let me straight away go to the outer herself so dr jaderji can you tell us something about yourself yeah
0: thank you that's De- 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 more uh Temsu, sorry Tia them i'm hoping that i got your name correct the second time uh, i am um very happy to have this conversation because um especially because uh i have tried to uh, do a work on uh, shillong and goa uh, two regions that i do not belong to and uh, and i am currently a senior academic fellow at the national law school and i'm um, doing some research i mean teaching.
1: yeah yeah um interesting so I mean, every book um, has a journey um, towards uh, of the person who is writing that book and the ideas that has been brought up. So, uh, can you tell us about the journey towards uh, coming to this very book and also the topic and, you know, that journey of uh, coming to this kind of topic and, you know, having to work on this topic, yeah.
0: Right. Um, it's true that um, as a sociology or anthropology student, it's not very usual to uh, choose a topic like uh, sound or an anthropology of sound, which was something that came to me, frankly, uh, due to my curiosity during master's when I I had encountered this book by Max Weber called uh, Rational and Social Foundations of Music, and uh, it was just introduced as um, you know as a part of our text. Um, as a part of a lecture by one of the professors in Calcutta. And I thought that it would be interesting to look at uh, sociological ideas explored through music and sound. Now, during that time, I was invested in a different um, idea of music world, which was to understand why Western classical music, or uh, especially classical guitarists, how they are so uh, important in Kolkata. I used to learn classical guitar myself. and without having any kind of native uh, local uh, icons or superstars to look up to, it was quite common to uh, you know take up these courses, attend these uh, recitals. But soon enough, as I got into uh, this sort of research, I realized how music education itself is heavily tied to this colonial way of um, having standardized music examination patterns like the ABRSM, like the Trinity College. And now there are different other music boards, and some of them are trying to uh, do away with this kind of uh, association with the British um, habitus, which is something I talk about in an NFL paper that I had written at uh, one point of time. Now, coming to uh, PhD, um, and uh, which basically shaped uh, this book, um, I was actually uh, contemplating starting uh, my doctoral thesis at the uh, Denny School of Economics, uh, Department of Sociology. And I was in conversation with Professor Omar Tatterjee, who became my supervisor. And she had told me that if you were interested, um, have you thought about or have you heard of this uh, sh- uh, group from Shillong called the Shillong Team of Fire? Quite frankly, at that point of time, I hadn't uh, seen the reality TV show. Um, and and uh, there have I mean, the first uh, people I heard about was actually, uh, I actually heard uh, Toshan, uh, Toshan Bor singing nong uh, singing an opera friend rendition. And then that got me into finding out about, okay, he knows about Nimnara, uh, Aruha Choir, and, um, and this whole fabric of how choral music as a phenomenon can be, you know, studied. And, uh, because of my prior and interest in, you know, understanding music pedagogy and music performance across Calcutta, Bombay and Goa. I was already sort uh, of sensitized to uh, look at what's happening in Goa, and um, as a backdrop to how I came to Goa as well, uh, my info supervisor, Lakshmi Subramanian, um, also had told me that uh, there is great potential to continue working uh, on Goa and see what's happening there because. Uh, You know, I had uh, gone there as a part of, I was also part of a German music education program called the Source Sangam, which was looking at teaching or uh, teaching uh, Western classical music in a particular way. And uh, also coming up with this understanding of how different music teachers from different schools across Calcutta Bombay, Goa, uh, Bangalore, How can they think of a collective? Well, that project took a different turn, of course. But what that got me into was this, uh, you know, full of people who are invested in making music and also not just instrumental, western classical music, which is how I got into this process. But vocal music, vocalization, sacred music and choral music which was something that I stumbled upon, literally. And uh, then that that made me very curious about how devotion and music shape constant communication. And I guess that's how I jumped into this project.
1: Yeah, uh, quite interesting. Now, in your thesis, uh, I mean, in your book, actually, you talk about the um, uh, Shillong context and the Goa context, right? Now, obviously, you have talked about how, you know, you came to know about these two um, uh, places and the music attached to it uh, through your personal, um, you know, personal journey. But also, uh, I also want to go specifically into this aspect where why Shillong and Goa, right? I think uh, that's a question that I want to put up. Here.
0: Yes, um Right, and and that is also a question I get asked quite often. Why do I choose only these two uh, to talk about something like choral voices? And uh, quite frankly, uh, although, yes, uh, partly it is because of my prior, uh, you know, in, uh, engagement with Goa that I chose to work with Goa. But the other reason, uh, there is some kind of... Uh, not exact similarity but how they are under you know outside the cartographical imagination of the mainstream if i must say how goa is looked upon as a tourist site or uh, as a tourism industry where people go and make music and they do know that goans are part of the uh, you know the, the arrangers of the bollywood industry going back to 1930s and how the Goan catholic community uh, the Christian community were largely found of in the music industries uh, that shaped a uh, large part of Bollywood and harmonization at one point of time. In case of Shilong, uh, you know, the same thing, uh, when we think of North East, we think of its North East as a whole, you know, and, and we do not really try to separate out what is happening in each state or each region. And um, another thing is that, again, it's, uh, identified with militarization and violence and and any kind of um extra state power or or that kind of uh idea and impression. But there is so much more and, and, and in case of Shillong only, uh when you have uh you know uh, soulmate uh talking about blues and, and uh hitting the world charts much before say even we hear about Chilang Chee So, But, but then uh, the sad part is that uh, we tend to look at certain regions with certain lenses and we do not go beyond what are the other cultural attributes and possibilities of knowing those people, of uh, knowing that place and the sociality around it. So I guess that is how I wanted to use the lens of sound to see how different kind of um musical possibilities we want even within the continuum of the sacred worlds
1: yeah i think um there's a very um interesting justification to that and i think that also brings out actually um certain different perspective to looking at um, peoples and communities i think that is something which is very interesting now coming to the um your discussion in the chapters i think initially i believe you discuss about the aspect of indigeneity and choral music and i think this is something which i particularly want to i can go into right because um you discuss about how uh, you know indigenous in the context of chor- choral imagination and i think this is where you use the concept or the idea of sonic interculturality so um can you uh you know elaborate more on the aspect of what really indigenous here is and then the choral music and how actually these two comes together right can you explain this one more yeah
0: yeah yeah sure um thank you for your um questions so the thing is that um Indigeneity is usually, when we think about indigeneity, it is about um, a certain kind of um, identity assertion or a certain kind of geopolitical um, ambition that is uh, marking out certain, you know, certain community or certain social attribute. But what happens in And in fact, I do talk about those different kinds of indigeneity in the chapter. How um, you know, um, Khaka talks about uh, indigeneity, and it's not just it's about how you know how it's not about who are the original inhabitants, but it's more about are we having access to certain kind of resources like coal, land, and all of that. And then um, you also have uh, this. Um, is it just enough to have a political sort of category of indigenous and what I would do after that? But my questions are understanding indigenacy in the context of the world of sound or if I borrow Stephen Fells' understanding of an acousticology or the habitat of sound through which I can understand or which I can lead a community. And in that, uh, by that I mean that what are really the local and the vernacular ways of expressing oneself and 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 that uh, that does not mean that it that it is entirely devoid of a template which is drawing from certain kind of a uh, that has a certain universal presence like say choral music which which in this case I'm talking about um and yes it came, as a part of uh, Christianity, it came um, as a way of civilizing, civilizing uh, or as a way of, um, you know, uh, spreading uh, the language of God or uh, or conversion. But what happens when we uh, when we become when we adopt that religion and it becomes part of our uh, own culture? and and we want to it, and we intersperse it with our motives, our kind of symbols, then what happens to the repertoire, both in terms of uh, interpreting devotion, as well as interpreting it through um, some utterances towards God, like, um, you know, and I'm saying that strictly first in the realm of church. But what this book also does is to explore indigeneity uh, as found in coral repertoire and how it uh, adopts very distinct regional styles and signatures, you know, in Goa and Shillong because of very complicated um, colonial imperial encounters and histories that shaped their life worlds. Like in this case, in Goa, it was the Portuguese, and in Shillong, it was the Welsh Calvinist ethic that shaped uh, the larger premise of how uh, choir music came. And it also talks about different denominations, whereas I mostly talk to the Catholic Goan. In Shillong. I uh, talked to Presbyterian, um, and also other denominations like uh, Baptist, Church of God, Um, um, Catholic and various other uh, you know um, strands of Christianity and then as you rightly pointed out what then sonic which is something uh, which is in a way an intellectual hook or an unique category that emerges from my faith from my um, interactions with my interlocutor that it is not trying to say uh, that there is a disjuncture between what is supposed to be a universal template and what is supposed to be a particularistic um, um, interpretation of that particular genre. Rather, it is an ongoing dialogue that is expanding on the notion of what is local, what is vernacular, and what is Um, cosmopolitanist. Briefly sum it up. Then, what is uh, you know what is this indigeneity that I'm talking about? It is to trace um, um, what emerges as cosmopolitan for the different uh, regions that I'm studying. For example, we see uh, Shillong embracing a medley kind of uh, genre to express itself, and medley itself becomes a genre because. Uh, they go on to use Bollywood um, sounds and, uh, in some cases, jazz sounds, um, as we see in case of Aroha How uh, how they are talking about uh, saying that you know, just because it's a sacred music doesn't mean that it has to be sung in the style of a hymn, but it can be sung across different genres, which can be classical across genres in the sense that there are. Um, classic uh, representations of particular genres that they take up and uh, distribute it to form a certain kind of repertoire. In case of Goa, what is happening, it is more about um, holding on to a certain Iberian, uh, that is Portuguese or uh, Spanish uh, nostalgia, that are and also. Uh, you know, interspersing it with the local uh, more dominance, if I might say, folk musical traditions like the Mandur, um, and how they can, and also certain motet, uh, which were sung and composed during certain parts. So it is more like um, a certain kind of a sacred repertoire uh, that is emerging. and. If the if these are the repertoires who are the people uh, that are interacted with and who are the places where are the places and the institutions that go to also determine why and how certain sounds take these kind of um you know roots
1: yeah um as you have um you know elaborated on the indig- indigeneity aspect of it and then the aspect of choral music imagination and also as you specifically talk on the the shilong and the koa context uh, i want to kind of like um go a little bit deeper into it one by one right and um at first i want to talk about the the shilong context where you talk about the Shillong jumper choir and the aroha choir. and also as, as you have mentioned you talk about medley and i think mm, obviously adopting certain form or certain way of uh, you know um Singing, and you know, in terms of this choral music, imagination, uh, musical imagination, I think, um the shilong jumper choir also became a national sensation right because of that uh, adaptation of certain way of you know of singing uh singing so i think uh w- when we look at this i think there's a certain motive to it there's a certain context that it comes through and also obviously it has that uh, cultural trajectory of uh you know what has come about and you know how it has been formed and how it has been actually received by people in different ways so uh can you actually you know s- uh, zoom in into the Shillong Chamber Choir and then the middle aspect of it and then, you know, the different cultural aspect that comes into it. Can you explore that a little bit? Yeah.
0: Right, right. Um, also, uh, Shillong Chamber Choir was the only choir who had read my PhD proposal and then decided to meet me. So, uh, and, uh, with them, my ethnographic, um, engagement had been more of a green room at Saint-Bufi, as I call it, because Mm, they said that, um, you know, they invited me to their home studio uh, one, one day and told me that we are very uh, curious about what you're doing. But we also want you to look at what other choirs in Shillong are doing. And they gave me a list of other choirs <coughs> to go and explore. And also then come back to them. And I told them that <coughs> that I would like more kind of kind with them and they said that that's all right so what they gave me as an option was to they did allow me to come and attend their uh, shows and i could uh, observe i could uh, be a part of the audience i was a fan i am a fan of shillong before fire myself so that was another reason as to why i was interested in the medleys of shillong shipper i became a fan uh, once I started working. Now, Bollywood, exactly. They said that Neil Longkingry, unfortunately we lost him uh, in 2021. When we had met but he said that it just incidentally happened that Bollywood became their chosen style of making because they were originally whole um, school and Neil Longkingry was a pianist concert pianist in London wanted to come back and do something with with Boy in in, in Shillong. And that's how he thought of coming up with the school and then he tried to um, actually have um classical concert. But then a reality T V show came about and that changed the entire perspective of how Shillong itself looked at the possibility of exploring Neonet with current music and, and everybody found this, um, entirely different. It's not like harmony was, like I mentioned, even before how many been part of Bollywood and early as 1913, like many other sounds that had traveled because of, um, interaction with the West. But what they did was they were suddenly what I call, uh, with Broadway, in the sense they gave us something of a um, little, little kind of theatrical um, dance move and uh, a storytelling kind of an experience alongside a certain kind of medley. So it was not just an oral affair, but it was also an oral visual element that added to this entire, uh, you know, sensation, as you call, it, of Shalom Chamber Fire, how they come about, the way they dress, and in some cases they also dressed in the traditional Katzi attire, uh, you know, with uh, their gents and uh, uh, and how they would otherwise also uh, talk of uh, or bring about a certain kind of a show uh, showmanship kind of perspective with, with that entire uh, thing of producing or giving us a certain kind of music now um i was also asked this question somewhere else so i i would like to say that somebody said that it it's different from k-pop you know somebody had told me and i i i was actually very interested to get that kind of uh, uh comparison because you know they are also becoming an alternative um uh, genre uh which is uh having its own kind of um uh Yeah, it's its own kind of purpose, its own kind of popularity. Um, but I would like to say, and then I also say Bollywood, Broadway. People say that, uh, what about the drama? What about, uh, it's it's not over the top. It's subtle. What is special about Sholom Chamber of Fire, Bollywood, Broadway is also it, it, it's subtle because I also think that it comes from the place because, I mean people from Sholom. They are not. Uh, they they are shy, and, and and I I mean this is something I have noticed about the community. So it it takes for them what they are doing is actually going above and beyond their normal, you know, the way they come across. So it's uh, and and they don't, uh, you know, they do not really listen to Bollywood songs. They have to learn the language. They've to listened to the songs or the, any other languages that they sing in. Other thing. About Shilong Che is that they wanted to showcase Kasi and other less uh sung languages within this canon of uh you know choral repertoire because otherwise it's always the European languages like French, German, and Italian, which is uh considered to be the legitimate way of establishing a repertoire. So what they are doing is they are also in their uh, homecoming Christmas album, and they. Uh, interspersed with Arabic and um Kharsi, uh, Farsi, lesser-known languages, who are also celebrating Christmas and saying that it's not Christmas is not just for Europe or for the West. But what about the languages that uh, also celebrate Christmas and what does it say about it? So these kind of um, you know uh, ideas come from the munitions themselves so they are very aware of what they are doing and how they are going to pin it
1: yeah yeah i think the way you contextualize uh shalom chamber the the you know the salon context is something uh quite interesting yeah that, that is something quite interesting now coming to the second second aspect is where you talk about the Kowa context and i think um, interestingly i think you also bring out the aspect of the institutional aspect right the seminary aspect of how music has been practiced and used and taught i think this is an imp- i believe this is a, an important aspect in trying to understand music and i this is where the aspect of uh, pay tea and then the worship protocol comes into and this is where i think in the, in the context you talk about the the you know the um imperialistic history and the cultural process coming together. And I think this is something which I'm also really interested to understand and know in the Goan context where you bring the seminary, the worship protocols, and then this uh, two historical aspect of, uh, you know, imperialistic history and cultural uh, process comes together. So can you, uh, you know, tell us something about this? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. true. I mean, there were two reasons as to why I chose to look at uh, the seminary. One, because I did not want it to be only uh, a book about fire, but also understanding how do we train ourselves, like you rightly pointed out, where does this training or how does it come about? And I didn't want to look at church because church is definitely one of the most direct ways of uh, locating the fires. But... If, <laughs> But what happens is that how does a priest, who actually becomes uh, the leaders of uh, religious worship, or the pastor, or the father, according to different denominations, what uh, what meaning does music really say, uh You know, play. So that led me uh, to uh one of the oldest seminaries in asia russia seminary in goa and um also because uh, to understand because you know uh goa with its portuguese um uh, tradition uh and the imperialistic history um they had parochial schools which taught them reading writing and arithmetic um and you you learn about it in in all sorts of initial impression that you know about Goa and how Christianity sort of became a part of their cultural process. What is the seminary, days? What because after the uh, you know um, Goa was no longer a part of Portuguese sovereignty uh, after 1961, but even after um, you know once the once the British started coming in all over India, they also started to impact the education system little by little in Goa. So that's how the parochial schools sort of went away. And then where does the music uh, stay then? That became uh, seminaries where it is a formation where priests learn how to um, know better um, ways of managing devotion and offering our religious services to God. Uh, that's where you know this uh, musical training then uh, went on, and uh, it was a Jesuit uh, um, in Goa who sort of also worked immensely in safeguarding Kunkini as a language, as a language of worship, as a language of hymn, and also um, it is still interesting to say. How church uh, masses are conducted in Konkani. Of course, you will find uh, people speaking in Konkani in village markets as well. But uh, in upper class, uh, upper car I mean, although nobody talks about caste, but you know what I'm talking about is that if um, there are even and even through my interactions, what I understood was that there were these shadow uh, sort of elements. Of how conversion history also talks about ka, where a region coming, like Lutoli, Kurthodin, certain areas where you know that uh, Saraswati Brahmins converts of Saraswati Brahmins came from, or those kind of conversations also came up. Of course, it's no longer there, but as a part of. So what I mean is that um, you know, in in seminaries we also find um, how language and how, um, how sort of uh, musical training, not just in voice, in Gregorian chant, because those were a part of the Italian uh, Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic sort of imagination at that point of time, um, but also in learning instrument, like violin, piano, um, uh, guitar, and many of the, I, I talk, talk about it through different seminarians and the biographies and the life worlds of different kind of uh, seminarians. Some of them who became parish priests or um, secretary to archbishop or somebody, some people who had their own groups of music and alternative choir like the Kota family choir, which was basically doing very different kind of uh, musical sound which was to go back to the nostalgic uh, pop um, and, uh, you know, renditions of Brazilian, uh, Portuguese and Spanish repertoire, and again, the Goan kind of vernacular thing. So what we see happening here is that um, they also form a different kind of repertoire, a Goan sacred repertoire, a Goan uh, vernacular uh, folk repertoire, and uh, all this is not um, is actually is the starting point we see in many cases is the seminary, and that is why the seminary becomes uh, an interesting uh, way to look at it. Um, in fact, I um, also uh, went to another seminary which I do not write about, Pilar seminary, and they were very kind to allow me to uh, attend some of classes, some of the classes with them uh which was on Astony inculturation and they said that i might find that interesting and i attended a few weeks of classes with the and and i was the only girl in the fort because it, it's not as space for women so and uh, so i have been and also in russia they have allowed me to sit through the gregorian chant lesson um so i think uh i've been also very fortunate that I was allowed to, despite coming from a different religion, coming from an upper class, upper class kind of um, affiliation, I was welcomed to explore the various aspects of uh, religion, as well as the different kind of sound. So, yes, upper class kind of um, affiliation, I was welcomed to explore the various aspects of uh religion as well as the different kind of sound so yes
1: yeah uh, yeah qu- quite interesting yeah i mean you have put it uh, really well uh now coming to the final aspect of um you know the thing that you discuss in your book you know one of my colleagues here in the university um a phd scholar golic she works on rituals and one of the aspects that she also kinds of work in is also the sounds or, the, you know, certain musics or certain sounds that is used uh, during uh, the ritualistic process, right? And she talks about how that form, certain form of enchantment and all those aspects. So that aspect of, you know, different forms of sound in the ritualistic process and in its enchantment. I think that is an interesting um, aspect of actually sound itself. And I think this is where you also talk about the geographical location and also at the same time one's perception of voice right in the geographical um, location itself I think this is I believe in terms of your work I think this is something uh, pertinent that you actually bring up so can you uh, you know explore or can you explain this one a uh, little bit more to us yeah
0: so um, so one of my chapters like you pointed out is about um, how uh, voice is also Sort of uh, rendering a certain kind of sociality, certain kind of place-making. And um, is devotion the only element that is uh, keeping the choirs uh, together? And what is uh, what are the singers otherwise doing and where are they coming from? And it's a different kind of narrative. We, we get to know that for some people it is uh, really lenient and... Um, and how they have gotten into this whole process of learning an instrument of singing as part of choir. And it is part of their upbringing of being uh, Christian um, and going to churches and Sunday school and that has shaped their life. Well, In some cases, they also talk about how choir becomes their first site of learning because uh, they learn to listen to others, they learn how it is important to have uh, maintain a certain kind of singularity, yet uh, the the sense of the collective should be there. So nobody can uh, be more prominent than the other. There has to be a sense of balance around it? it? Uh, certain kind of um, unitary or or ultimately a singular sound in the form of a connective rather than one boy. So th- those kind of learning also we see. And um, and their aspirations to then become other kind of singers. Where somebody might have a shoe which is a uh, singing, uh, singing style, which is more raspy or which is more uh, jazzy. Then what do they do? Do they want to continue being trained into a soprano voice or do they take uh, the uh, trajectory of being an alto? And of course, like, uh, for the... For the um, let's just say for, uh, for not complicating it much, I have mostly talked about four choir in uh, four voices in a choir, but there can be more than four voices. There can be more harmony uh, in imagining sort of uh, even choirs. But church choirs mostly look at four uh, four voices, and then so then what happens with um because I have spoken to mezzos who have grown up in Shillong and, and uh, that they are supposed to have, they are considered naturally to be singers. This was something that I was told um, even when I started this project, why are you researching? Meghalaya, not Miguras. And then later I found out, okay, because that's supposed to be, because it's more ingrained later on I found in terms of rehearsal and in, in, in terms of ritual, as we pointed out, they, they have twice a week Rehearsal, which is which which is very normal. Everybody uh, who is part of a church choir, and, and then there are different levels of uh, pastoral choir or or uh, standing choir as we go into uh, you know uh, the di- different denominations and how things happen in uh, Mizoram. But coming back to Shillong again, and coming back to let's just say Goa and how the kind of peacemaking and sociality happen. We also see how they they want to uh talk about how they chanced upon the music. Most of the stories are about how they became a part of a certain choir, be it uh the Shillong choir, be it um uh, you know, uh the Suti ensemble and also this whole idea about um certain uh community sentiment. Certain um, uh, regional sort of upbringing and and certain kind of um, urge to sing a certain kind of in a certain kind of way and and in fact the materiality of sound which is which we see in in the sense of how the voice or the body of the voice uh, how the body whole uh, a certain kind of voice becomes very insisting because it also talks about the ranges and how people sort of uh, realize that it's more about how we use the head voice or how we uh, how we know that um, what style or what tone um, suits uh, a certain kind of uh, you know structure, things like that and we also move on to uh, talk about instrumental, uh, you know, uh, if we balance in to talk about this kind of inhabiting or inburning a certain kind of voice, like the viola, like the violin, like the guitar, and sing so on and so forth. But what I'm trying to say is that um, what the chapter on voice and sociality also talks about is that what are the different sites where we see the choir and and the foreign voices traveling to, not just within the church, but in auditorium, in in uh, reality TV shows and festivals, in, um, in marking out certain kind of heritage ideas, and also sometimes in a rock band and uh, sometimes in a modern age opera uh or a uh, light opera version of a certain kind of thing, so we also see then that it is talking about um um the possibility of the voice having multiple meaning as well as rendering it uh, rendering it to different kind of spaces which itself talk about different kind of um geometry
1: yeah, yeah interesting you know i have a last question and i think this question is uh pertains to actually um uh, what you're working and how it relates to other aspects of uh music and this is i mean in your work you talk about um choral music but also at the same time now you that is where also the christian tradition comes in right in your work uh, but also in christian tradition o- obviously the aspect of choral music is also there but when you look at the the churches which are interdenominational obviously this uh, they do not really have this uh you know choirs or whatever not but they actually have praise and worship team and you know their kind of progression that you use a kind of music uh, everything is different uh um, everything is different now i think this is something which actually is becoming very much popular among the people right um in uh, at least in the, this part of the country that i know of so so uh, how, how do you um under in in light of your work how do you understand this different form of music that has been coming up in the you know the christian churches that are there yeah I mean, f- also for people who want to f- further go into this area of research, right?
0: <laughs> right, right. Now, this is a very interesting question, because again, the question of um, the notion of what is indigenous and what is vernacular, uh, come and uh, this kind of, say, gospel music or interdenominational music that you are talking about, that kind of training, you know, in Shillong, especially there is Martin Luther Christian University, where you have um a department to study indigenous music and and I talk about it in my book also how uh, there, uh the way that examines health is actually to f- compose uh using certain indigenous instruments like the k- kating or uh, the Duisara or um and use it and and use the the particular khasi uh intonation. Uh, and the language to to sing and talk about some kind of um, you know event, and uh, and that had, that that have got probably that have directly got nothing to do with uh, Christianity, and it's true. And I have also made this point about um, uh, at least how I saw it in Shillong, how there was because there is Christianity and there is uh, Nyamkharsi. And and uh, so you do not. It's not like uh, there are not indigenous religion that or festivals like non Krem and all are being also observed. Now, now the thing is, uh, it's a different matter when it comes to um, talking about a kharti culture. And in in that case, it's not like we will only uh, if, there is only an imagination of doing it in the Christian manner. But of course, it's also. Uh, borrowing different kinds of ideas from each other and coming up with something, um, maybe syncretic, maybe uh, something more um, uh, like a confluence and and those kind of ideas also. So now um, to to respond to your question, like um, how is it uh, adding to it? I also feel that um, we are living in a neoliberal era and um, everything. Now needs the label, now needs the category. Everybody needs to be identified in a particular way. Even neoliberalism itself is a <laughs> concept that is trying to uh, see that everybody is uh part of that neoliberal logic of uh, whatever, market or or, or a sort of politics or any, anything that you say. So there's a danger. I-, I find it a little uneasy to see, like, um, then are we uh is there a danger of uh showcasing something of an exotic element or is it because uh, and is it because that uh that is preferred or is it to counter uh the mainstream imagination so those kind of um things um and and why is there this whole idea about say mainstream and uh you know outside the mainstream? Why do we have these kind of even uh, demarcations? And and it, it basically, you know, it, it's not just political uh, ideas, but then you see that even in a cultural world, then you get, uh, get to be uh, narrowed down into these kind of uh, categories. And, and is there a way to think beyond these categories? And how do we then think through it? What are the ways um, can we actually uh, try and even though like I'm not really talking about the word like decolonization in that sense of the term, but what I'm trying to say is that um, there have been colonization and there have been certain kind of uh, uh, original ideas of customs, beliefs. And, uh, the life world and the life-world and the uh, sense and cultural sensitization happened. Now, uh, but what are we doing? Like my question is, and I see that, that what is the original? It's very, very, uh, because whatever we try to do the next time, it is an iteration of the first sign. But of course, we need to have an original idea so we like to have categories and without categories we may not be able to think out things So like that way we have in the denominational music, we have uh Bollywood Broadway music or say uh, jazz music or Western Glass Bay music or choral music. But what I also try to talk about that, you know, actually all these are choral music. Or 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 there are different kinds of foreign music or choral voices and not just a homogenous term of what is the current voice. Because in that sense, then we are not moving beyond anywhere from from where we started, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you for a wonderful um, answer, yeah, to the question. So um, our conversation has come to an end, but I would like to ask you a few more questions. The first one is, you know, uh, what exactly are you working on or planning to work on in terms of your academic project, right? Uh, tell us something about that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, um, right now I am actually interested in looking at, um, because um, because of my interest in um, religious music, I'm interested in looking at instruments, um, indigenous instruments um, like duitara, like kasing, um, and Look at why certain instruments are part of, say, sacred imagination, and why some are part of folk. Is it to do with the limitation of of tone, of timbre, of musical forms and ideas, or is it also something to do with um, different kind of purposes and uh, cultural and imaginations and socio political real? Similarly, I also want to look at how bomot in Boa. Is uh now uh, looking for a GI tag because uh, it has already been considered to be a state heritage instrument, and they want to get the intangible UNESCO status. Uh, but Goomd, um, which is not in fort, and and there are also I am interested uh, with the questions of ecology and labor. Like who are the people who are the instrument maker? Where are they coming from? Uh Do they think, or are they just making instruments in some um far off places and um certain villages or certain uh rural areas and then what does it talk about the social location of the instrument maker and again these are the this whole idea of what's sacred, what is non sacred and also ecology in the sense that are you using uh wood? Are you using um, monitor lizard, which is banned in Goa, for instance, and now you're using goat, uh, goat skin? What does it do to the sound? Um, why are we uh, like in in Mizoram, for example, uh, the big drum that they use, Kwang, uh, I think uh, it's made of wood, and but that is a basic symbol of uh, the church, so. What does it also talk about then tradition and and, and the kind of, um yeah, social expectation and all of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. So if anyone wants to, you know, interact with you further on your book, uh, how did they reach out to you? And when is the Indian edition coming out? Yeah.
0: Yes. Uh, so the Indian edition is coming out on 18th May, which is uh, this month and it is uh, reasonably bright. So I, I will be very happy uh, if people pick it up and I get to hear from people what they think about it. Uh, my email ID is skdanzi18c at gmail.com. It's my personal email ID and yeah.
1: So cool.
0: that's it. It was lovely chatting with you and thank you for uh, such an engaging uh, I mean reading my work with uh, such precision. Thank you. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, um, thank you. Thank you for such a wonderful conversation, actually. And I would also request the listeners to actually get a hold of the book and actually go through it. I, I think you will, uh, you know, you will be drawn into the immersed world of the choral voices and how it relates to the context, the places, and history. And I think uh, this is, that is the journey that you are you will be going through when you read the book. So I would also urge listeners to really go through the book. Uh, thank you, Dr. Sepandi Chatterjee, for being here at New Books Next. Yeah, bye bye. Take care. Yeah,
0: thank you for having me.